0: Chapter fifteen of Pushing to the Front by Orison Sweat Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter fifteen. What a Good Appearance Will Do. Let thy attire be comely but not costly. Livy. Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy. But not expressed in fancy, rich not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. Shakespeare. I hold that gentleman to be the best dressed whose dress no one observes. Anthony Trollope. As a general thing, an individual who is neat in his person is neat in his morals. H. W. Shaw there are two chief factors in good appearance cleanliness of body and comeliness of attire usually these go together neatness of attire indicating a sanitary care of the person while outward slovenliness suggests a carelessness for appearance that probably goes deeper than the clothes covering the body we express ourselves first of all in our bodies the outer condition of the body is accepted as the symbol of the inner. If it is unlovely or repulsive, through sheer neglect or indifference, we conclude that the mind corresponds with it. As a rule, the conclusion is a just one. High ideals and strong, clean, wholesome lives and work are incompatible with low standards of personal cleanliness. A young man who neglects his bath will neglect his mind, He will quickly deteriorate in every way. A young woman who ceases to care for her appearance in minutest detail will soon cease to please. She will fall little by little until she degenerates into an ambitionless slattern. It is not to be wondered at that the Talmud places cleanliness next to godliness. I should place it nearer still. FOR I BELIEVE THAT ABSOLUTE CLEANLINESS IS GODLINESS. CLEANLINESS, OR PURITY OF SOUL AND BODY, RAISES MAN TO THE HIGHEST ESTATE. WITHOUT THIS HE IS NOTHING BUT A BRUTE. THERE IS A VERY CLOSE CONNECTION BETWEEN A FINE, STRONG, CLEAN physique AND A FINE, STRONG, CLEAN CHARACTER. A MAN WHO ALLOWS HIMSELF TO BECOME CARELESS IN REGARD TO THE ONE WILL, IN SPITE OF HIMSELF fall away in the other. But self-interest clamors as loudly as aesthetic or moral considerations for the fulfillment of the laws of cleanliness. Every day we see people receiving demerits for failure to live up to them. I can recall instances of capable stenographers who forfeited their positions because they did not keep their fingernails clean. An honest, intelligent man whom I know, lost his place in a large publishing firm, because he was careless about shaving and brushing his teeth. The other day a lady remarked that she went into a store to buy some ribbons, but when she saw the sale girl's hands she changed her mind and made her purchase elsewhere. Dainty ribbons, she said, could not be handled by such soiled fingers without losing some of their freshness. Of course— It will not be long until that girl's employer will discover that she is not advancing his business, and then, well, the law will work inexorably. The first point to be emphasized in the making of a good appearance is the necessity of frequent bathing. A daily bath ensures a clean, wholesome condition of the skin, without which health is impossible. Next in importance to the bath is the proper care of the hair the hands and the teeth this requires little more than a small amount of time and the use of soap and water the hair of course should be combed and brushed regularly every day if it is naturally oily it should be washed thoroughly every two weeks with a good reliable scalp soap and warm water to which a very little ammonia may be added if the hair is dry or lacking in oily matter It should not be washed oftener than once a month, and the ammonia may be omitted. Manicure sets are so cheap that they are within the reach of almost everyone. If you cannot afford to buy a whole set, you can buy a file. You can get one as low as ten cents, and keep your nails smooth and clean. Keeping the teeth in good condition is a very simple matter. Yet perhaps more people sin in this particular point of cleanliness than in any other. I know young men, and young women too, who dress very well, and seem to take considerable pride in their personal appearance, yet neglect their teeth. They do not realize that there could hardly be a worse blot on one's appearance than dirty or decaying teeth, or the absence of one or two in front. Nothing can be more offensive in man or woman than a foul breath, and no one can have neglected teeth without reaping this consequence. We all know how disagreeable it is to be anywhere near a person whose breath is bad. It is positively disgusting. No employer wants a clerk, or stenographer, or other employee about him, who contaminates the atmosphere. Nor does he, if he is at all particular, want one whose appearance is marred by a lack of one or two front teeth many an applicant has been denied the position he sought because of bad teeth for those who have to make their way in the world the best counsel on the subject of clothes may be summed up in this short sentence let thy attire be comely but not costly simplicity in dress is its greatest charm and in these days when there is such an infinite variety of tasteful but inexpensive fabrics to choose from, the majority can afford to be well-dressed. But no one need blush for a shabby suit, if circumstances prevent his having a better one. You will be more respected by yourself and everyone else, with an old coat in your back that has been paid for, than a new one that has not. It is not the shabbiness that is unavoidable, but the slovenliness that is avoidable that the world frowns upon no one no matter how poor he may be will be excused for wearing a dirty coat a crumpled collar or muddy shoes if you are dressed according to your means no matter how poorly you are appropriately dressed the consciousness of making the best appearance you possibly can of always being scrupulously neat and clean and of maintaining your self-respect and integrity at all costs will sustain you under the most adverse circumstances and give you a dignity strength and magnetic forcefulness that will command the respect and admiration of others herbert h vreeland who rose in a short time from a section hand on the long island railroad to the presidency of all the surface railways in New York City, should be a practical authority on this subject. In the course of an address on how to attain success, he said, Clothes don't make the man, but good clothes have got many a man a good job. If you have twenty-five dollars and want a job, it is better to spend twenty dollars for a suit of clothes, four dollars for shoes, and the rest for a shave, a haircut, and a clean collar, and walk to the place, than go with the money in the pockets of a dingy suit. Most large business houses make it a rule not to employ anyone who looks seedy, or even slovenly, or who does not make a good appearance when he applies for a position. The man who hires all the salespeople for one of the largest retail stores in Chicago says While the routine of application is in every case strictly adhered to, the fact remains that the most important element in an applicant's chance for a trial is his personality. It does not matter how much merit or ability an applicant for a position may possess. He cannot afford to be careless of his personal appearance. Diamonds in the rough of infinitely greater value than the polished glass of some of those who get positions may occasionally be rejected. Applicants whose good appearance helped them to secure a place may often be very superficial in comparison with some who were rejected in their favor, and may not have half their merit, but having secured it, they may keep it, though not possessing half the ability of the boy or girl who was turned away. That the same rule that governs employers in America holds in England is evidenced by the London Draper's Record. It says, Wherever a marked personal care is exhibited for the cleanliness of the person and for neatness in dress, there is also almost always found extra carefulness as regards the finish of work done. Work people whose personal habits are slovenly produce slovenly work those who are careful of their own appearance are equally careful of the looks of the work they turn out and probably what is true of the workroom is equally true of the region behind the counter is it not a fact that the smart saleswoman is usually rather particular about her dress is averse to wearing dingy collars frayed cuffs and faded ties the truth of the matter seems to be that extra care as regards personal habits and general appearance is, as a rule, indicative of a certain alertness of mind, which shows itself antagonistic to slovenliness of all kinds. No young man or woman who wishes to retain that most potent factor of the successful life, self-respect, can afford to be negligent in the matter of dress for the character is subdued to what it is clothed in as the consciousness of being well dressed tends to grace and ease of manner so shabby ill-fitting and soiled attires makes one feel awkward and constrained lacking in dignity and importance our clothes unmistakably affect our feelings and self-respect as anyone knows who has experienced the sensation And who has not, that comes from being attired in new and becoming raiment? Poor, ill-fitting, or soiled garments are detrimental to morals and manners. The consciousness of clean linen, says Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, is in and of itself a source of moral strength, second only to that of a clean conscience." a well-ironed collar or a fresh glove has carried many a man through an emergency in which a wrinkle or a rip would have defeated him. The importance of attending to little details, the perfection of which really constitutes the well-dressed man or woman, is well illustrated by this story of a young woman's failure to secure a desirable position. One of those large-souled women of wealth in which our generation is rich, had established an industrial school for girls in which they received a good english education and were trained to be self-supporting she needed the services of a superintendent and teacher and considered herself fortunate when the trustees of the institution recommended to her a young woman whose tact knowledge perfect manners and general fitness for the position they extolled in the highest terms The young woman was invited by the founder of the school to call on her at once. Apparently, she possessed all the required qualifications. And yet, without assigning any reason, Mrs. V. absolutely refused to give her a trial. Long afterward, when questioned by a friend as to the cause of her seemingly inexplicable conduct in refusing to engage so competent a teacher, she replied, "'It was a trifle.' but a trifle in which, as in an Egyptian hieroglyphic, lay a volume of meaning. The young woman came to me fashionably and expensively dressed, but with torn and soiled gloves and half of the buttons off her shoes. A slovenly woman is not a fit guide for any young girl. Probably the applicant never knew why she did not obtain the position, for she was undoubtedly well qualified to fill it in every respect except in this seemingly unimportant matter of attention to the little details of dress from every point of view it pays well to dress well the knowledge that we are becomingly clothed acts like a mental tonic very few men or women are so strong and so perfectly poised as to be unaffected by their surroundings if you lie around half-dressed without making your toilet, and with your room all in disorder, taking it easy because you do not expect or wish to see anybody, you will find yourself very quickly taking on the mood of your attire and environment. Your mind will slip down. It will refuse to exert itself. It will become as slovenly slipshod and inactive as your body. On the other hand, if when you have an attack of the blues... When you feel half-sick and not able to work, instead of lying around the house in your old wrapper or dressing gown, you take a good bath, a Turkish bath if you can afford it. Put on your best clothes and make your toilet as carefully as if you were going to a fashionable reception. You will feel like a new person. Nine times out of ten before you have finished dressing, your blues and your half-sick feeling will have vanished like a bad dream, and your whole outlook on life will have changed. By emphasizing the importance of dress, I do not mean that you should be like Beau Brummel, the English fop who spent $4,000 a year at his tailor's alone, and who used to take hours to tie his cravat. An undue love of dress is worse than a total disregard of it and they love dress too much, who go in debt for it, who make it their chief object in life, to the neglect of their most sacred duty to themselves and others, or who, like Beau Brummel, devote most of their waking hours to its study. But I do claim, in view of its effect on ourselves and on those with whom we come in contact, that it is a duty, as well as the truest economy, to dress as well and becomingly as our position requires and our means will allow many young men and women make the mistake of thinking that well dressed necessarily means being expensively dressed and with this erroneous idea in mind they fall into as great a pitfall as those who think clothes are of no importance they devote the time that should be given to the culture of head and heart to studying their toilets and planning how they can buy out of their limited salaries this or that expensive hat or tie or coat which they see exhibited in some fashionable store if they cannot by any possibility afford the coveted article they buy some cheap tawdry imitation the effect of which is only to make them look ridiculous young men of this stamp wear cheap rings, vermilion-tinted ties, and broad checks, and almost invariably they occupy cheap positions. Like the dandy, whom Carlyle describes as a clothes-wearing man, a man whose trade, office, and existence consists in the wearing of clothes, every faculty of whose soul, spirit, person, and purse is heroically consecrated to this one object, they live to dress and have no time to devote to self-culture or to fitting themselves for higher positions the overdressed young woman is merely the feminine of the overdressed young man the manners of both seem to have a subtle connection with their clothes they are loud flashy vulgar their style of dress bespeaks a type of character even more objectionable than that of the slovenly untidily dressed person the world accepts the truth announced by shakespeare that the apparel oft proclaims the man and the man and the woman too are frequently condemned by the very garb which they think makes them so irresistible at first sight it may seem hasty or superficial to judge men or women by their clothes but experience has proved again and again that they do as a rule Measure the sense and self-respect of the wearer, and aspirants to success should be as careful in choosing their dress as their companions, for the old adage, "'Tell me thy company, and I will tell thee what thou art,' is offset by this wise saying of some philosopher of the commonplace. "'Show me all the dresses a woman has worn in the course of her life, and I will write you her biography.'" how exquisitely absurd it is says sydney smith to teach a girl that beauty is of no value dress of no use beauty is of value her whole prospect and happiness in life may often depend upon a new gown or a becoming bonnet if she has five grains of common sense she will find this out the great thing is to teach her their proper value It is true that clothes do not make the man, but they have a much larger influence on man's life than we are wont to attribute to them. Prentice Mulford declares dress to be one of the avenues for the spiritualization of the race. This is not an extravagant statement, when we remember what an effect clothes have in inciting to personal cleanliness. Let a woman, for instance, don an old soiled or worn wrapper and it will have the effect of making her indifferent as to whether her hair is frowsy or in curl-papers it does not matter whether her face or hands are clean or not or what sort of slipshod shoes she wears for anything she argues is good enough to go with this old wrapper her walk her manner the general trend of her feelings will in some subtle way be dominated by the old wrapper suppose she changes puts on a dainty muslin garment instead how different her looks and acts her hair must be becomingly arranged so as not to be at odds with her dress her face and hands and finger-nails must be spotless as the muslin which surrounds them the down-at-heel old shoes are exchanged for suitable slippers her mind runs along new channels she has much more respect for the wearer of the new clean wrapper than for the wearer of the old soiled one would you change the current of your thoughts change your raiment and you will at once feel the effect even so great an authority as buffon the naturalist and philosopher testifies to the influence of dress on thought He declares himself utterly incapable of thinking to good purpose, except in full-court dress. This he always put on before entering his study, not even omitting his sword. There is something about ill-fitting, unbecoming, or shabby apparel, which not only robs one of self-respect, but also of comfort and power. Good clothes give ease of manner and make one talk well the consciousness of being well dressed gives a grace and ease of manner that even religion will not bestow while inferiority of garb often induces restraint one cannot but feel that god is a lover of appropriate dress he has put robes of beauty and glory upon all his works Every flower is dressed in richness. Every field blushes beneath the mantle of beauty. Every star is veiled in brightness. Every bird is clothed in the habiliments of the most exquisite taste. And surely he is pleased when we provide a beautiful setting for the greatest of his handiworks. End of chapter 15 What a good appearance will do. Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland.